to know how to start. So, hello and welcome to episode one of our podcast. I'm joined today by my two lovely co-hosts, Sam and Jim. Sam, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, CVC. Thank you. And Jim, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. So, I'm hesitant to say that this show is about Alan Moore's novel, Jerusalem, for reasons that I'll get into momentarily, but the show is about Alan Moore's novel, Jerusalem. So each episode is going to cover one chapter, of which there are 30-something, I believe. And we're going to try to release an episode, I think, every two weeks, but we'll see how that actually works out. Although I imagine that most of our listeners are also listeners of The Past with Jim, in which case you'll be used to waiting for episodes. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the, the Jim Expanded Universe. Oh, okay, I didn't realize <laughs> this was like an adversarial mode podcast. That's, that's, that's all good. Somebody's got to be. So as to why I was hesitant to say that this show is about Jerusalem is realistically, I know that not many people are going to read a 1300 page novel, let alone because a podcast told them that they should. So rather than having it be about the book specifically, we're just going to use each chapter as kind of a jumping off point. We actually had the idea for this back in early August, I want to say, but we got sidetracked. But this week, Alan Moore was in the news again. Jim, do you want to tell us what happened? Um, so Alan Moore hasn't written comics in some time, and his latest endeavor is, I shouldn't say difficult to describe, it's multifaceted, it's uh, sort of a film project that he's secured funding for and has hopes of maybe turning into a TV show someday, but what it does also have him doing, more importantly for our purposes, it's got him back on the interview circuit, which is uh, always a fraught place for Mr. Moore and uh, really anybody else who uses the internet during that time, because... Uh, Somebody asked him his opinion on, on, on kind of superhero movies and kind of the work of comics and uh, having such hegemony over kind of modern pop culture. And he said that oh, they think they're a blight and they're a blight on culture. And these are stories for children and that it's infantilizing when hundreds of thousands of adults go to see them. And so ex exactly what you'd expect him to say or what you'd expect kind of, I think, any guy who looks like that probably <laughs> to say if he was, he was just like at a bus station or something. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and then of course that got all the people that you would expect to get really, really angry that he was, oh, I guess pulling up the rope ladder after himself, having kind of uh, made all his money on comics, which I think is is fair enough. And I mean, I, I think he does have some adult audiences in mind when he uh, writes some of his things. But of course, his, his main thrust of what he said was entirely justifiable. And that's what made people so angry about it. So yeah, so, yeah I think that kind of, I guess, shows how maybe in some sense, far he's i don't shouldn't say slid how far he's moved on purpose from kind of what he got his start doing yeah i think he made he made a sort of contingent argument that relates superheroes uh and superhero movies being like culturally hegemonic to you know the rise of fascist movements in the world and people don't really understand contingent versus causal um so they got mad about that i think Right, as in this is uh, both symptoms of kind of infantilization versus like, yeah, one causing the other. Although he did also, um, he also said uh, the Satsuma. Yeah, the, yeah, National Socialist Satsuma, which is <laughs> by far my favorite Orange Man bad um, <laughs> that I've seen. But it is it is very Orange Man bad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's really it's Terry Gross' voice, honestly. So what is everyone here's relationship with Alan Moore and his work? Like, have you all read a good amount of Alan Moore? Or? I've read a fair amount of Alan Moore. 
I was not ever really a comics guy, but I was a kid who had like a sort of a self-inflated notion of their own intelligence. So I like read, you know, like Watchmen and uh, V for Vendetta at a certain point. So very much to like people who felt too good for comics. Um, and I, you know, appreciated them as a, as a teenager. Uh, and recently I actually went back and this was after I moved to the US and I read Moore's Swamp Thing, which was actually fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. And it was a very interesting, um, very interesting and relevant work to me at that time. He, it's a very strange work. I'll give you a very brief summary of sort of the important part of Moore's intervention in it, in which you have, I think it's 20, 20 issues written, which were your sort of classic anti-hero monster opening. Scientist gets blasted with chemicals and thrown into a swamp. He walks out a swamp monster. That's 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 your classic your classic setup, and Moore hits it with this pretty extraordinary twist when he when he sets in and makes it kind of a core part of the series going forward, which is that Swamp Thing learns in episode twenty one when when Moore steps in that in fact he is not the dead scientist, he the scientist died quite fully, um, and he is this sort of persisting memory of the of the scientist in the swamp. And it ends up being this very sort of Buddhist exploration of the discontinuity of self, um, where he is an entirely new being. Um, he's locked into this. It, it's about him, in a sense, trying to escape his self and surrender to the current state of things, um, which was a very helpful thing, or at least a very uh, interesting thing for me to read after you know, moving to a moving to a new country at a pretty difficult time in my life, and um, sort of re reinventing myself, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I, I would I would highly recommend reading at least that first run of Swamp Thing if you want to get a slightly less typical introduction to Moore's comic work. So that's 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 my that's the, that's the most important part of my relationship with Moore's work, I'd say. So Alan Moore's kind of disavowed things like Watchmen and B for Vendetta. Is he like that with Swamp Thing as I've well? I've actually not or? seen him uh, quizzed about Swamp Thing because, I mean, people ask more of the same questions in every interview and then get kind of shocked when he gives the same answer. Um, <laughs> yeah. And those same, that, that like standard set of questions just doesn't seem to include Swamp Thing. It's like V for Vendetta. It's, it's primarily Watchmen, then V for Vendetta. Then occasionally they hit him with the killing joke. That's because um, yeah, the ones that there are Hollywood movies of, pretty. Simple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Swamp Thing has only had a couple of really tacky adaptations, and one recently that got canceled like three episodes into the first season. So yeah, he's no one's no. As far as I can tell, no one is is asking about Swamp Thing, which I would I would like to hear him talk about that more. But but yeah, we're not we're not we're not seeing those questions. If, any, if anybody's found interviews where he talks about it recently, please. It frustrates me in interviews with him because like you said, they always ask him the same questions and then the news cycle about it will talk about like what a bitch he is for talking about how bad superhero comics are, even though like he's made it abundantly clear in every single interview that he's done that he doesn't want to talk about them. But still, that's the only thing that he ever gets asked about. Yeah, it was interesting like reading his kind of latest, because I mean like that's, that cycle will continue forever because like, you know, that's what got me to read the article. Right. So <laughs> I'm part of the problem, but like, 
I kind of his explanation of why he thinks that like that that oh that superhero comics are for they're for you know working class children essentially is kind of the the work the the group he ascribed them to. But like I'm not really sure if I believe him that he thinks that that's all the only people he was ever writing for. He certainly doesn't write like a children's entertainer, but also I think he's might be looking for a way to say like mine were good and these ones are bad because uh, even like comics is a medium, <laughs> regardless of whether, you know, just because an adult is reading, it doesn't mean it has to be uh, it has to be infinity war or what have you. I think it's like the fundamental it's, it's the problem of like genre creators. I've read a lot of science fiction and there's something exceedingly frustrating about about people clearly writing science fiction, saying that they're not a science fiction writer. Um, Margaret Atwood, yeah, yeah. And there's just yeah, there's there's literature, and then there's there's genre work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's obviously there, there's a sort of a subtle difference when you're dealing with an entire medium, but there's definitely a sort of danger to that just re- sort of full out rejection of genre. It's like horror movies too. Mm-hmm. About how like people will say that A twenty four movies are elevated horror or whatever. Yeah, which I think is yeah, nice, like everyone else working in the now. field is just you know a, an imbecile. Um, previously, just because it doesn't you know it's a yeah. I mean it's it's the it's the same thing with with science fiction where it's like science fiction that makes it brutally clear, clearly investigating something pertinent to current discourse transcends and becomes literature. Whereas science fiction that uses like the schlocky tropes of classic science fiction can't be investigating something similar, which is of course is nonsense. Yeah. Every Margaret, uh, Margaret Atwood interview is like a speculative fiction enjoyer versus science fiction fan meme. And it's just, I understand it because it's in the New York review of books or something, but it's kind of irritating. Yeah. I mean, I do think there is a bit of a tragedy and this sort of comes applies to Alan Moore as well. Um, with genre fiction, and this definitely applies to comics and Alan Moore's work. Um, this is, uh, I read a really sort of heartbreaking interview with Le Guin, who is, you know, very much, a, she, she calls herself a science fiction writer sometimes, a right, fantastic yeah. fiction writer when she's writing fantasy, um, very much like leans into the fact that she's a genre writer, although I would say that she's, she can be quite literary, but she really struggles in, in this particular case with the lack of good criticism. Uh, she talks about like creation and, and artistic creation, and this will maybe feed into something we're gonna talk into a little talk about a little later, as like a conversation between the artist and the critic. And really good criticism is how you become stronger as an artist. And she doesn't exactly say this, I'd have to pull up the interview, um, but reading between the lines to me, it came out really clear that she was very frustrated that if you wrote like a smart, well-written science fiction novel, there were very few people to poke any sort of holes in it or give any sort of um, not entirely positive criticism. And I could only imagine that Alan Moore, as a pretty smart writer, struggled in a similar way with comics where it's like, someone wrote a smart comic, we're only gonna say nice things about it as opposed to like engaging with it critically. That's interesting that thought about the critics that much when writing it because the impression that I got from Moore at least was that while that certainly was an aspect of it for him I feel like he tries not to think about that as much as just connecting to the audience in a genuine sense I guess I'm looking very quizzical you can't see my face but very furrowed <laughs> yeah I mean I don't think I don't think like Le Guin is writing for the critics so to speak 
But I do think that for her, the way she she conceives of herself becoming a better writer is people in some ways attacking her work. And she does this herself. She sort of eviscerates herself and like the when she writes about the left hand of darkness later and says that she, you know, it was very like some very like second wave sort of gender transgression stuff going on there that was interesting at the time, but that she wouldn't do now. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely over reading between the lines here, but it definitely seems like she was looking for more harsh criticism. And I, I've, I definitely feel like that's something that the genre tends to struggle with. And it's probably the case with, with comics. Although at the same time, there's a lot of great comics criticism now and just all the creators reject it. So that's, that's a whole different problem. So, I mean, we could probably move on to sort of talking about Alan Moore and, and the role of the artist. So about the role of the artist and like how much critics and the audience factors into that. There was an interesting quote from Alan Moore in an interview that I listened to. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't listened to any interviews with Alan Moore, he has a wonderful voice. Like it's very deep and resonant and everything he says sounds very measured. Like it's what I would imagine the ends of Lord of the Rings sound like. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, anyway, in in the interview, he said that art isn't about what you want, but rather what the universe wants through you, and that the best creative artists should regard themselves as being a clean window pane. And so while they might look down at the beautif beautiful rectangle of golden light that they're casting, they shouldn't mistake themselves for the source of the light. So what do you guys think about that? Um, I think that kind of seems like... Uh... I mean, he's obviously like really humble as a creator, but that seems kind of in line with a lot of thinking about artists over the centuries as having been kind of conduits as much as like creative figures, that whole kind of creativity and the idea that this is like yeah. somebody's the wellspring of something, I guess is kind of, kind of an early modern invention, if not even later. So mm -hmm. since so many of the things he kind of, so many of the ways he sees the world, I guess, is kind of different and drastically different cosmologies having equal validity in his kind of not very modernist uh, kind of way of seeing himself in the world. I think kind of an understanding as an artist is showing you where to look and letting something shine through that you couldn't otherwise see. It sounds both emblematic of that. And I think kind of also the way he sees the, the political role of the artist is kind of forcing people to, to look at things that they might not otherwise look at. There's, I think there's one interview that he talks about it being a kind of magic to him, creation, the creation of art. And I think he sees this as this very sort of ancient priestly kind of magic in which it, it's, it's not, a, not a modern 20th century magic of, of an individual manipulating the world, but an individual sort of channeling these forces far greater than them in, in, into a creative endeavor. And I think that's someone that shared a very similar view on the role of the artist is William Blake, whose presence kind of looms large throughout the entirety of Jerusalem. And the novel's title itself is actually taken from a Blake poem, as is the title of this podcast. There could be some confusion here because one of Blake's prophetic books is titled Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that most people know is actually from the beginning of the prophetic book Milton. And this Jerusalem has become a very popular hymn in England. And it's something of an unofficial national anthem because it's kind of ironic because it doesn't exactly paint England <laughs> in a very positive light. But <laughs> anyway, so in Blake's mythos, Jerusalem, or the city of God, exists as the sum of all human, imaginative, and creative efforts. 
And I think that that's something that you kind of see in Alan Moore, too, and how he views the world, because he's very much someone who draws a lot of inspiration from Blake. I certainly don't have your familiarity with William Blake, but uh, like the parallels, I think, go beyond, definitely beyond just just Jerusalem. And you can kind of see a lot of Blake in, uh, I don't know, kind of the, the disdain for for figures like God and Satan and, and Hellblazer and a few other kind of things that he's written that uh, yeah. have kind of a, if not contemptuous, yeah. then kind of mystical and maybe a little bit above it all mentality that uh, that yeah. certainly he imagines Blake is having. But yeah, right down to the way he writes about Blake himself, but also uh, he writes himself into, uh, I believe in From Hell, uh, the his serial killer like manifests as uh, the ghost of the flea from from Blake's own artwork and so he he's obviously a, a huge fan and so I think he probably consciously kind of echoes him as well as unconsciously because he seems so yes so to see himself in kind of like a mystical tradition as well as a like a literary one yeah I mean, it's, it's a very strong mysticism that is uh, also this he shares this strong rejection of like organized religion and yeah. sort of a structured religious understanding of, of the cosmos He's very, yeah, I think very similar to Blake in that regard. The vision of the window with the light pouring through it seems quite romantic. And I was also going to say about about placing himself in that tradition. I think that's something that Blake definitely did as well, like with Milton. That's basically him reanimating John Milton and having a conversation with him. (laughs) Which I guess like all art is kind of doing that, but it's usually not so explicit. So it's neat to see sometimes when it is. And although I should, I guess, contradict myself a little bit because I think Alan Moore does have a bit of kind of the English free thinker sort of thing where I, I, I don't, I don't think he has maybe like the distrust of rationalism that like a Blake would have. And I, I don't want to make him sound like he's got some kind of coherent uh, anti-enlightenment thing going. Like I really do think he thinks he's right in the literal sense and that religion in general seems to be yeah, pretty nonsensical to him. So he's he's got kind of a mix in that in that respect with his relationship towards towards rationalism and towards just being right when everybody else is wrong as much as uh, understanding more than they do. He has a certainty that seems quite that that in some ways seems quite opposed to Blake's kind of mysticism. Yeah. So with regards to Blake and Alan Moore, they also were both from England. And something that you said the other day, Jim, was that. You could tell in Alan Moore's work that he loves England. Yeah. But um, it's not really in a jingoistic I guess this surrounds like, the theme of Jerusalem in general. Is it's, It seems, at least in my mind, to be kind of incredibly tied to like the island and like the land of England even more specifically. And so I think with Alan Moore's obvious kind of affection for these cultural figures like, you know, like uh, Guy Fawkes, uh, for instance, he... He and it's it's interesting because it contrasts with how much he despises, you know, like the royals or like any sort of that sort of figure. Or even it's, I think his interview also had a bit of him talking about how he's he's getting his his COVID nineteen information from his own experts, and obviously he's distancing himself. He doesn't need the government to tell him. And so he has this kind of tremendous affinity for Englishness uh, as a culture and this kind of contempt for it as as an organization. And I think that shows through with makes sense with kind of his his personal anarchist beliefs but obviously like his really close ties to the kind of mysticism of place and his his not his not feeling that as a conflict with, with any kind of identity because he's does uh kind of 
entrench himself so tightly in that literary tradition of of Blake and kind of religious nonconformism and maybe, you know, Crowley and, and so on. Did we want to talk about magic with relation to Alan Moore? I don't pretend to understand uh, Alan Moore's relationship with magic or what he thinks it is. So I think that he says that magic is not necessarily magic in the ritual sense, like not doing spells or whatever, but rather just a purposeful engagement with the world. And I think that he views art and pretty much any creative endeavor as being an example of magic. If when you say magic, that's not what most people think of. So, um, I, I was just going to say that it's it's sort of interesting to contrast him with a what I think of as a far more malevolent and less likable figure of like modern English fantasism, which is Neil Gaiman, who also views creation as a sort of mystical mystical thing is very invested in the idea of the story as being this sort of magical motive force for for being in creation which of course is like a profoundly self-important thing to think as a as a storyteller and i think it's interesting to me reading more on it who has i think it's in spite of his mysticism a much more materially materially grounded although sometimes obfuscating relationship to you know, magic and storytelling. He is interested in following the threads to where they end, um, even if it's a very complex tapestry, unlike the the lazy sort of English fantasists, which is who's happy to hand wave away those endpoints and just sort of allow the, the fuzziness of it all to to give the effect. Moore is very interested in, in, in following it up, which is sort of contradictory attitude. I think it comes back to his rationalism um, and his certainty where he does want to he, he's engaging and he has this sort of mystical perspective on the world, but he engages with it in a quite scientific way in his works in a quite exhaustive way, I would say. I'm not sure what you mean about him following the thread to the end. Could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking of is that a, an effect can be produced by people who use a lot, who draw on a lot of different traditions and a lot of different sort of cultural touchstones um, at the same time that can be very obfuscatory, that can sort of cover up uh, a weakness in reasoning. Gaiman does this, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of modern writers engaging with magic in this way do this, I think, in which they pull on all of these different like historical, cultural, mystical, religious threads and sort of weave them together in a messy sort of way to produce an, a, an effect. Um, and Moore sort of does this too, um, where he's, He's very referential. He's engaging with a lot of, uh, he's engaging with history in a really deep way. But I think he is not just using it to produce that effect. He is actually interested for the most part in sort of tracking down the endpoints of these threads, these these different sort of concepts that he introduces. Um, it's definitely something that I, I see in Swamp Thing, the way he sort of follows each of these engagements with the Swamp Thing and, and nature's experience uh, in a very like explicit way, he's not he's not avoiding it. If that makes any sense, yeah, I think that's something that you definitely see in Jerusalem as well, because every chapter takes place during a different time, and they still feel very developed. Each one, like the characters in each, so I think you definitely get a sense of that there as well. And in relation to that, I think that's something that's very important for more is the concept that the landscapes in which we live are something that we internalize to a very great extent. 
And so I think he said in one interview that if you're living somewhere that appears to be a kind of a rat trap, you're going to end up feeling like a rat. Like, whereas if you put the effort in to learn more about the history of the places in which you're spending all of your time, that imbues them with a certain magic in a sense. And I think that there's something very affirming about this, like the Penelope work of weaving together these histories and mythologies to form a tapestry of which you're now a part. With regards to that, with where more is from, the entirety of Jerusalem takes place in Northampton, which is the town in which he grew up, and it's where he's still living to this day. And Jim, did you want to tell us a little bit about Northampton? Yeah, sure. I think Moore's kind of sense of place, not to cast too far back into things I, I can't cite uh, beyond my own feelings, but I think the tradition he's kind of part of in his personal nonconformism and kind of uh, his really unique artwork, like the preservation of place uh, that even is so evident in like the poem Into Those Feet in Ancient Time itself is I find like kind of central to like rebellion in the sense that uh, every, every British cultural figure from, you know, George Monbiot to probably, I don't know, Kenneth Branagh and I don't know, Adele all seem to have some kind of intense personal cause about like the South South Wiltshire Badger Habitat Preservation Society or something somehow. This seems to be Mm -hmm. something that everybody needs to have if they're not like invited to, to Prince Andrew's parties or whatever. And it seems to me like this sense of like place is affirming and is binding and is kind of welcoming in an artistic sense has always kind of felt like a bit of reaction in, in the British canon, at least to the forces of like industrialization and uh, disenfranchisement and dislocation and all these things that, uh, that Moore and his, his kind of brand of artists have always, have always been kind of critics of. And so I think Northampton is probably, I think, pretty consciously on his part, is a reflection of that just in the sense that it's been around for so long and it has these kind of incredible continuities as well as ruptures with um, its own past. So it's an incredibly old place. It's like an Iron Age settlement. And this is typical of a lot of like major settlements in Europe, obviously, but uh, in England even more so. So it's kind of been inhabited since the the Middle Ages and onward. And it was the site of a few... Northampton Castle was a major royal residence, and so it had a few dozen parliaments there, and uh, eventually took the parliamentary side in the uh, English Civil War, after previously having been a royal residence, and as a result is has its castle destroyed and its fortifications taken down uh, after the restoration by means of punishment, and then is pretty much completely destroyed by fire shortly thereafter in the, uh, in the restoration era, and kind of what exists has existed since then. So it's got kind of this sense of itself, but... Uh, Apparently, its built environment is kind of weird and really contrasts with itself with these these kind of really old buildings alongside all these new ones. It becomes a center of shoe manufacturing, so that's kind of its its industry. Like the everything from the local the local you know football team is called the Cobblers, and and everything kind of if it was a you know if it was in Canada, they'd have a massive shoe by the side of the motorway. <laughs> um, but uh, that of course declines after the Second World War and after there aren't regular regular orders for hundreds of thousands of pairs of boots coming through. And then, then it's just kind of being gutted by austerity for the last uh, 40 or 50 years, like so many other places in the, in the English Midlands. And that's something that Moore refers to pretty often in, in interviews is uh, the really depressing state of Northampton's absolute uh, fiscal bankruptcy and being kind of put under special sorts of management. It's uh, 
strange in that it's very large, but it has like a two-tier system of governments. I don't know exactly much about kind of English municipal divisions, but uh, it's it's a mess, frankly. And so I think that's something he feels is important to write about and important to kind of stick by as it gets more and more difficult. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I was actually, I think it was a new town, which was one of the like post-World War II sort of places where which they built up consciously in a very managed sense for like all the displaced people from you know the bombed out city i watched this really fascinating what was it it's the uh the ministry for it was the ministry of information or was it the one that came after that um but yeah so this this video that was set out to sort of proselytize the new towns that they're building out. And it sort of, it gives this quite extraordinary narrative of industrialization, which, you know, cities are sort of destroyed by industrialization. We have our little cartoon protagonist um, sort of commuting in with the, all these awful, the capped, work, dirty looking working class fellows. Um, and they sit down and try to solve this problem we, there's, there's this quite extraordinary graphic where they place a green belt around London and the city is sort of trying to like burst out of the green belt, keeps failing. They, someone suggests that we build skyscrapers and we hear a chorus of British voices saying, oh, my garden, my pub, I can't get my pram up the stairs. So no skyscrapers. And so they propose these like satellite towns basically. Um, and they go into a lot of detail about like how Every decision made for these satellite towns is, of course, perfect and for the best. They, they open the description of the satellite town with most, of, most important of all is the child, I think the quote is, which is really <laughs> the ideology of suburbia. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And obviously it was sort of this, like it, it, after that, you know, industrial decline, it like burst up again as this sort of commuter town and then is, is gutted by austerity. It's interesting to sort of see that, that ideological progression. Wasn't it also the site of one of the first, it was the first factory, but a specific type of factory, something with a water mill, maybe? I want to say something like, yeah, the first, uh, the first water powder industrial mill, Marvel's Mill, I think it was called. Hmm. Oh, there's also, I'll, uh, I'll look that up in the next couple minutes here. There's also an analogy about Northampton in an interview with Moore that stuck with me. So for context, Northampton is kind of in the center of England geographically, but also for more in a metaphorical sense. But anyway, he was talking about how if you have this beautiful tapestry and there's a burned hole in the middle of it, that hole is eventually going to run all the way to the edges. And he was talking about that with reference to how Northampton and other areas like it have largely been left in the shadows of development in more wealthy places, which I think isn't something that's exclusive to England at all. Like you could see it pretty much anywhere in the world. He sounds like Bruce Springsteen, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Now that you mention it. Yeah. It's like the, the New Jersey, the New Jersey of, of, of England. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, uh, yeah. Marvel's mill was the first, uh, the first cotton factory essentially that was, uh, they used, they used, they used an inanimate, an inanimate power source of any kind. And it was a, it was a water driven mill. Yeah. 1741. So kind of one of Blake's first uh, dark satanic ones, I would imagine. Yeah. That's the funny thing about Jerusalem, the hymn to me, because if you're trying to have a hymn that is supposed to be something that kind of riles you up and gets you excited about your country, <laughs> you don't really want to hear about dark satanic mills in that. No, it's a very strange thing to be singing while you 
you know, Maxim gun down the Zulu or any of those things, considering who he was and, and what he believed. And it's yeah. kind of been turned into this, like, you guys remember the 2012 Olympic opening ceremonies? I do not. It's a very kind of, uh, they have like Kenneth Branagh as a, like out there in a top hat directing like the construction of smokestacks and shit. Yeah, I, I remember have that. To, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. There's a lot, a lot going on. <laughs> But it's this kind of very strange relationship with all these beloved cultural figures that despised these developments uh, while they were happening, yeah. when they were starting, and afterwards. And it's just kind of all subsumed into, you know, we, we needed the Midlands so that we could uh, have the NHS or, or something. It's a very strange sequence yeah. as represented. Born in, a, the born yeah. in the USA. Um. <laughs> yeah. They're not listening to all the lyrics is the problem. Yeah. Full circle. Nicely done. So, yeah. Some good podcasting there. So we left off. <laughs> so we left off talking about New Jersey. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna yeah. go from there. Ooh, as regards bringing the jobs back, yeah, no, I'm kind of excited to to see in the book kind of how much he tries to tie characters to the place in their own minds as well as just in general, and whether it's going to be about process of change or whether it's just going to be a little snippets and snapshots and whether there'll be a bunch of soliloquies about uh, about time or yeah i'm interested to see kind of how he works that in narratively as well as thematically i know we'll get into it more but i was was really struck by this this first chapter which is this like prolonged dream sequence that f- sort of floats back through time in a couple of different ways that's uh yeah it was quite striking i, I enjoyed it i'm looking forward to digging into it more so are you talking about the prologue or the first yes, chapter? Yes, prologue. prologue. Sorry. Okay. I've just read the prologue and the first chapter, I think. So, yeah. What do you think of his writing style so far? Before reading Jerusalem, my primary engagement with his work was in comics. And it's definitely a different vibe you get from comics versus actual fleshed out prose. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I, I always find it really striking to see people moving genres in like such a, or, or medium, uh, media in such a drastic sense. I think it's it's always it's very enlightening to me regarding both media. I feel like I learn more about both media when I when I see people trying to work the same way, and it's interesting because I think Moore even talks about this in that interview that I I, I linked to you, um, and I guess we can throw it in the description. And he talks about how the the comic panel sort of has all this description built in and how he's trying to do this in the book and it is it is interesting i'm not sure it always succeeds but when it does it's really fascinating because he's clearly on a sort of paragraph by paragraph level trying to imitate the depth of a pa- at least to me it looks like he's trying to imitate the depth of a panel so in each paragraph he gives us all of this framing there's always a lot going on in the background of each paragraph or at least most in, in, in a lot of the paragraphs and so it feels like he's trying to yeah trying to give us the impression of a sort of a busy panel with a foreground which is a really it, it i'm not sure you can pull it off in text quite the same way but when he does pull it off it's it's quite effective and, and even when he doesn't it's still still very interesting and enjoyable but yeah it's definitely it definitely feels like he's so almost directly translating what I could imagine as a script for a for a com- for a comic would be, in which he describes what's happening. He gives us our dialogue. 
he gives us an overarching an overarching uh, direction of the scene. Uh, and so we have this like really these really intense detailed backgrounds that I feel like we're almost meant to glance over a little as we as we read through it and not sort of get too sucked into. But that's just that's just my my feeling about it so far. I think that gives you a good sense of why the book is thirteen hundred pages long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that's probably how his mind works for all these years. Jim, you're listening to the audiobook of it, right? Rather than actually reading. Excuse you? Rather than actually reading, huh? <laughs> I'm getting judged up and down this podcast. <laughs> you're experiencing it in a right. in an inferior way, but what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, the reason I chose to do this in a way that doesn't count is I didn't that, mean that uh, it doesn't count. I'm just in contrast to. <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's Jim's Simon Van. Joining us for episode two now. Sorry. Jim's not going to be joining us for episode two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I won't have read it, right? So how could I <laughs> yeah. join? Really, any of these. <laughs> <laughs> Rules. Yeah. All right, Jim, you want to tell us about audiobooks again? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, Simon Vance is kind of something of a, as close to a, a celebrity narrator, I guess, as the audiobook world has. But he's he's done his, his legwork and has gone to Northampton and kind of had Alan Moore show him the ropes of the place. And so I, I hope that kind of helped him prepare for this role. And I... I imagine his voice will, Moore's voice will come through in the writing to the point that I'll just start equating him with the narrator entirely in the first couple chapters, and we'll probably think his voice sounds weird when this is over. Uh, lovely as, as it is, I was kind of worried actually because, I don't know my British accents super well, but the one I do remember is uh, like Birmingham. It makes me want to throw up. I think it's <laughs> like some of the worst things I've heard to, in, in its hemisphere, certainly. Yeah, anyway, so it's, it was a nice surprise that uh, I guess the East Midlands sound a little bit different. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think, uh, I guess if I felt like his kind of style of writing and his kind of primary medium is far enough outside the kind of conventional literary work and that this is going to be far enough away from a conventional literary work anyway that I would uh, not be losing anything by not uh, experiencing it in the in the written medium, so to speak. I, I'm not a, actually a purist. I'm just just being annoying. I, I appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> I'm not either. I didn't mean it yeah. for it to come across that way. <laughs> I just meant like in contrast to the physical book. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is different. No, I, I think we all know you meant. It's good. <laughs> yeah. So, do you typically listen to things as audiobooks? Me? Uh, yeah, yeah. Generally, reading is for posts, in my opinion. Uh, no, that's just I can I find. I honestly just find that it's like a lot of books that I might pick up, but just don't end up doing. I can usually uh, motor through on an, on an audio format. Uh, it's I think in most of the cases that I'm listening to a book, it was less likely to be that or reading it in a paper copy and more like that or not at all. So yeah, I think that's a major advantage. I think the thing with audiobooks for me is that I just can't pay attention to them. Like even if I'm not doing anything else, like if it's while I'm driving or something, my mind will still just wander. Yeah, I, I struggle with the speed of audiobooks because I generally read at a very variable speed and I'll sort of jump back um, and like reread sentences. And that's generally my struggle. It's not so much the, like, because I, I, I actually think it's really interesting listening to audiobooks. There's a really fantastic series that I think the BBC did. Um, hate to give them any credit, 
Um, <laughs> but they did do some really good readings that they organized. Um, I, th I think it was the BBC, but they did like a, a reading of Moby Dick where they had different people read each chapter. And it was super bizarre cast of characters um, where they had, you know, all kinds of British celebrities. I think they had David Cameron read a chapter. I think I listened um, to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it is really interesting listening to something with a bunch of different voices and sort of trying to and engaging with all of these different people's interpretations of the tone and pacing and sort of finding what's common between them. Uh, yeah. There was another one they did, I think, uh, I think it was the Almeida Theater did of the the Iliad, which was fantastic. They did like a reading of the Fagel's Iliad, uh, which was like a, a they, they did it over like 40 hours or something, just back to back, um, but, but lots of different readers, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting to me. I, I really, really enjoy that. When you guys are reading, is it in your own voice or do you like hear voices for different characters? Ooh, good question. Yeah, I don't think I have a voice when I'm reading. I I don't think, I, I, I don't really read it inside my head. If I slow myself down, I generally will start getting a bit of a monologue as I read it. But most of the time I just sort of, most of the time when I'm reading, I forget I'm reading. Uh, if I'm really, if I'm, if I'm really getting into something. I think you read the same way. Yeah, I'll sort of lose a certain sense of self, um, particularly if I'm reading fiction. I think that the only yeah, I time think if I slow it down I, enough. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying that I think that the only time that I actively notice a difference is sometimes when I'm reading like British poetry, like Keats or Blake, I'll do a British accent in my head because some of the rhymes only really work that way. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jim, what were you saying? Yeah, well, kind of a similar thing. Like, it depends. If I know the author's voice, I might read it in theirs. But uh, most of the time, I don't have one unless I really do slow down and, and try to do it on purpose. And if I don't have one to fill the void, then usually it ends up being a, a, a your announcer type uh, tweed clad <laughs> uh, kind of BBC received pronunciation. Like, whoever they would get to read out the IRA missives on air. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Still the voice of authority. Yeah, maybe some generations it'll be be purged from my mind, but not yet. Yeah, I definitely find myself when I'm reading something that I expect to be strongly accented, I, I will try or that has a very particular accent, I, I will make the effort to generate that accent. And that's generally generally, I feel like it's worthwhile. I struggle personally with phonetic accents. They always they, they just which is which is something that I definitely um, had to sort of wrestle with a bit reading Jerusalem. Um, and I, I think this may just, this is probably just a me problem, but I really find phonetic accents like written out quite grating. And Thank I have you. to That's sort of, as well. yeah. And it's something that I have to sort of, um, reorient myself towards and yeah, like really, really try and generate that accent internally. Yeah. Oh, something else that I have. <laughs> So when I'm reading a work from from antiquity, so like the Iliad or the Odyssey, there's a specific voice that I always read female characters, their speech in. And I realized like maybe a year or two ago that it's just the voice of Athena from the campaign in ancient mythology. <laughs> Excellent. I, I never knew what it was. And then it hit me one day and I was like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Yep, I get that. I, I know for me because I like reading sort of ancient, like the first 
I don't know, work of ancient literature I read as like a teenager. I say read, I didn't finish it to be clear. This, I, it was like Chapman's, Chapman's Homer, which is sort of, I think in a lot of ways, like a really poor translation. It's this very, very stilted, um, very English. <laughs> um, but it's, but yeah. And so, and so I, you're definitely reading it in that kind of, like not a modern BBC received pronunciation, but a like fifties BBC, BBC <laughs> pronunciation, um, which is oh, yeah. my, my voice of my voice of Chapman and thus my voice of Homer. I definitely applied that to when I was like reading Marcus Aurelius. And then when I was reading um, like Plato, just all of them in this like fifties BBC voice. Which <laughs> I have, yeah. I really, I really can't really can't sort of imagine Plato speaking some, you know, in some like awful Hellenic, Hellenic accent. <laughs> if anything, more like I don't know, like Portuguese or something. Before it, yeah, something, it yeah, something stranger, something, something much stranger. It's like that video that did once, where he said that if Socrates was alive now, he'd talk like Big Time Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like Socrates would have somewhat of the, the physical affect of of. Big time Tommy, I imagine. Very Absolutely. physically imposing, strange looking, uh, charismatic yeah, but, in an odd sort of way. He'd be doing the he'd be like sitting down on blocks in the Agora, like without bending at knees or waist type of kind of um, yeah. stance. I can see that for sure. Speaking of voices, I think we have a good mix for this podcast. I don't think people will get ours confused. Sorry? I said, speaking of voices, I think that we have a good mix on here. I don't think that people will be getting ours confused. Oh, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, Jim and I have sufficiently different accents and tones. I think so. And for me, it's not an okay. issue, obviously. Yeah. But I think that Definitely seems like a few podcasts I listen to. Them. Yeah. No, I was just saying that the, the podcasts which have a bunch of guys who are about the same age and who have about the same voice um, <laughs> that I've listened to many episodes of and still can't really put names to voices. Oh yeah. man, I had this one just, yeah, sometimes I, like I tried putting on like a podcast about video games once years ago <laughs> and it was just like six of the same guy just like cutting in over <laughs> each other and like <laughs> laughing really loudly and it was just like a horrifying like hall of mirrors, uh, <laughs> killing joke, I guess, type experience. It was, you just go in your living room and hear that. Sorry? Yeah. I said you could just go in your living room and hear that with your three Xboxes running. Yeah, well, you know, we don't, we don't talk. That's that's weird. Yeah, you can do stuff in silence. That's right. So I think that that's as good a place to cut it off as any for today. Yeah, probably. Thank you guys for joining me. We'll talk later, and I'm sure we'll get better about silences and stuff as we get more used to this. Well, except that nobody's ever going to know because you're going to edit it to make me sound smarter and really quick to the draw with all these insights. Right? Please. Yeah. And I'll edit out Thank me you. saying that about the silence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'll never suspect anything. Good luck making me, me sound more coherent. There's just there's too many ums in there. So do either of you have anything you want to plug before we leave? The gym cast? I would say. Let's listen to the gym oh, cast. Well, you know, uh, I guess if, if you insist. I wasn't gonna gonna say anything, but I think that everyone um, listening should listen to Jimcast. I'd probably just plug my Twitter handle, and then people can uh, people who go there will find it. So yeah. So I think that's all for now.
So thank you guys for joining us if you made it this far, I guess. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>